Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 On the Man Called Christ Chapter 1 The God in the Cave Part 3 But there was a third element that must not be ignored, and one which that religion forever refuses to ignore, in any revel or reconciliation. There was present in the primary scenes of the drama that enemy that had rotted the legends with lust and frozen theories into atheism, but which answered the direct challenge with something of that more direct method which we have seen in the conscious cult of the demons. In the description of that demon worship, of the devouring detestation of innocence shown in the works of its witchcraft and the most inhuman of its human sacrifice, I have said less of its incorrect and secret penetration of the saner paganism, the soaking of mythological imagination with sex, the rise of imperial pride into insanity. But both the indirect and the direct influence make themselves felt in the drama of Bethlehem. A ruler under the Roman suzerainty, probably equipped and surrounded with the Roman ornament and order, though himself of Eastern blood, seems in that hour to have felt stirring within him the spirit of strange things. We all know the story of how Herod, alarmed at some rumor of a mysterious rival, remembered the wild gesture of the capricious despots of Asia and ordered a massacre of suspects of the new generation of the populace. Everyone knows the story, but not everyone has perhaps noted its place in the story of the strange religions of men. Not everybody has seen the significance, even of its very contrast with the Corinthian columns and the Roman pavement of that conquered and superficially civilized world. Only, as the purpose in his dark spirit began to show and shine in the eyes of the Idumean, a seer might perhaps have seen something like a great gray ghost that looked over his shoulder have seen behind him filling the dome of night and hovering for the last time over history, that vast and fearful face that was Moloch of the Carthaginians, awaiting his last tribute from a ruler of the races of Shem. The demons also, in that first festival of Christmas, feasted after their own fashion. Unless we understand the presence of that enemy, we shall not only miss the point of Christianity, but even miss the point of Christmas. Christmas for us in Christendom has become one thing, and in one sense even a simple thing. But like all the truths of that tradition, it is in another sense a very complex thing. Its unique note is the simultaneous striking of many notes, of humility, of gaiety, of gratitude, of mystical fear, but also of vigilance and of drama. It is not only an occasion for the peacemakers, any more than for the merrymakers. It is not only a Hindu peace conference, any more than it is only a Scandinavian winter feast. There is something defiant in it also, something that makes the abrupt bells at midnight sound like the great guns of a battle that has just been won. All this indescribable thing that we call the Christmas atmosphere only hangs in the air as something like a lingering fragrance 
or fading vapor from the exultant explosion of that one hour in the Judean hills nearly 2,000 years ago. But the savor is still unmistakable, and it is something too subtle or too solitary to be covered by our use of the word peace. By the very nature of the story, the rejoicings in the cavern were rejoicings in a fortress or an outlaw's den. Properly understood, it is not unduly flippant to say they were rejoicings in a dugout. It is not only true that such a subterranean chamber was a hiding place from enemies, and that the enemies were already scouring the stony plain that lay above it like a sky. It is not only that the very horse hoofs of Herod might in that sense have passed like thunder over the sunken head of Christ. It is also that there is in that image a true idea of an outpost, of a piercing through the rock, and an entrance into an enemy territory. There is in this buried divinity an idea of undermining the world, of shaking the towers and palaces from below even as Herod the great king felt the earthquake under him and swayed with his swaying palace. That is perhaps the mightiest of the mysteries of the cave. It is already apparent that though men are said to have looked for hell under the earth, in this case it is rather heaven that is under the earth. And there follows in this strange story the idea of an upheaval of heaven. That is the paradox of the whole position, that henceforth the highest thing can only work from below. Royalty can only return to its own by a sort of rebellion. Indeed, the church from its beginnings, and perhaps especially in its beginnings, was not so much a principality as a revolution against the prince of the world. This sense that the world had been conquered by the great usurper and was in his possession has been much deplored or derided by those optimists who identify enlightenment with ease. But it was responsible for all that thrill of defiance, and a beautiful danger that made the good news seem to be really both good and new. It was, in truth, against a huge unconscious usurpation that it raised a revolt, and originally so obscure a revolt. Olympus still occupied the sky like a motionless cloud molded into many mighty forms. Philosophy still sat in the high places, and even on the thrones of the kings, when Christ was born in the cave and Christianity in the catacombs. In both cases, we may remark the same paradox of revolution. The sense of something despised, and of something feared. The cave, in one aspect, is only a whole or corner, into which the outcasts are swept like rubbish. Yet, in the other aspect, it is a hiding place of something valuable, which the tyrants are seeking like treasure. In one sense, they are there because the innkeeper would not even remember them, and, in another, because the king can never forget them. We have already noted that this paradox appeared also in the treatment of the early church. It was important while it was still insignificant, and certainly while it was still impotent. It was important solely because it was intolerable, and in that sense it is true to say that it was intolerable because it was intolerant. It was resented because, in its own still and almost secret way, it had declared war. It had risen out of the ground to wreck the heaven and earth 
of heathenism. It did not try to destroy all that creation of gold and marble, but it contemplated a world without it. It dared to look right through it, as though the gold and marble had been glass. Those who charged the Christians with burning down Rome with firebrands were slanderers. But they were at least far nearer to the nature of Christianity than those among the moderns who tell us that the Christians were a sort of ethical society, being martyred in a languid fashion for telling men they had a duty to their neighbors, and only mildly disliked because they were meek and mild. Herod had his place, therefore, in the miracle play of Bethlehem because he is the menace to the church militant and shows it from the first as under persecution and fighting for its life. For those who think this a discord, it is a discord that sounds simultaneously with the Christmas bells. For those who think the idea of the crusade is one that spoils the idea of the cross, we can only say that for them the idea of the cross is spoiled. The idea of the cross is spoiled quite literally in the cradle. It is not here to the purpose to argue with them on the abstract ethics of fighting. The purpose in this place is merely to sum up the combination of ideas that make up the Christian and Catholic idea, and to note that all of them are already crystallized in the first Christmas story. They are three distinct and commonly contrasted things which are nevertheless one thing. But this is the only thing which can make them one. The first is the human instinct for a heaven that shall be as literal and almost as local as a home. It is the idea pursued by all poets and pagans making myths, that a particular place must be the shrine of the god or the abode of the blessed, that fairyland is a land, or that the return of the ghost must be the resurrection of the body. I do not hear reason about the refusal of rationalism to satisfy this need. I only say that if the rationalists refuse to satisfy it, the pagans will not be satisfied. This is present in the story of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, as it is present in the story of Delos and Delphi, and as it is not present in the whole universe of Lucretius or the whole universe of Herbert Spencer. The second element is a philosophy larger than other philosophies, larger than that of Lucretius, and infinitely larger than that of Herbert Spencer. It looks at the world through a hundred windows, where the ancient Stoic or the modern agnostic only looks through one. It sees life with thousands of eyes belonging to thousands of different sorts of people, where the other is only the individual standpoint of a Stoic or an agnostic. It has something for all moods of man. It finds work for all kinds of men. It understands secrets of psychology. It is aware of depths of evil. It is able to distinguish between ideal and unreal marvels and miraculous exceptions. It trains itself intact about hard cases, all with a multiplicity and subtlety and imagination about the varieties of life which is far beyond the bald or breezy platitudes of most ancient or modern moral philosophy. In a word, there is more in it. It finds more in existence to think about. It gets more out of life. Masses of this material about our many-sided life have been added since the time of St. Thomas Aquinas. But St. Thomas Aquinas alone would have found himself limited in the world of Confucius or of Comte. And the third point is this. 
that while it is local enough for poetry and larger than any other philosophy, it is also a challenge and a fight. While it is deliberately broadened to embrace every aspect of truth, it is still stiffly embattled against every mode of error. It gets every kind of man to fight for it. It gets every kind of weapon to fight with. It widens its knowledge of the things that are fought for and against with every art of curiosity or sympathy. But it never forgets that it is fighting. It proclaims peace on earth and never forgets why there was war in heaven. This is the trinity of truths symbolized here by the three types in the old Christmas story, the shepherds and the kings and that other king who warred upon the children. It is simply not true to say that other religions and philosophies are, in this respect, its rivals. It is not true to say that any one of them combines these characters. It is not true to say that any one of them pretends to combine them. Buddhism may profess to be equally mystical. It does not even profess to be equally military. Islam may profess to be equally military. It does not even profess to be equally metaphysical and subtle. Confucianism may profess to satisfy the need of the philosophers for order and reason. It does not even profess to satisfy the need of the mystics for miracle and sacrament and the consecration of concrete things. There are many evidences of this presence of a spirit at once universal and unique. One will serve here, which is the symbol of the subject of this chapter, that no other story, no pagan legend, or philosophical anecdote, or historical event, does, in fact, affect any of us with that peculiar and even poignant impression produced on us by the word Bethlehem. No other birth of a god or childhood of a sage seems to us to be Christmas, or anything like Christmas. It is either too cold, or too frivolous, or too formal and classical, or too simple and savage or too occult and complicated. Not one of us, whatever his opinions, would ever go to such a scene with the sense that he was going home. He might admire it because it was poetical, or because it was philosophical, or any number of other things in separation, but not because it was itself. The truth is that there is a quite peculiar and individual character about the hold of this story on human nature. It is not in its psychological substance at all like a mere legend or the life of a great man. It does not exactly in the ordinary sense turn our minds to greatness, to those extensions and exaggerations of humanity which are turned into gods and heroes, even by the healthiest sort of hero worship. It does not exactly work outwards, adventurously, to the wonders to be found at the ends of the earth. It is rather something that surprises us from behind, from the hidden and personal part of our being, like that which can sometimes take us off our guard in the pathos of small objects or the blind pieties of the poor. It is rather as if a man had found an inner room in the very heart of his own house, which he had never suspected, and seen a light from within. It is as if he found something at the back of his own heart that betrayed him into good. It is not made of what the world would call strong materials. Or rather, it is made of materials whose strength is in that winged levity with which they brush us 
and pass. It is all that is in us but a brief tenderness that is there made eternal. All that means no more than a momentary softening that is, in some strange fashion, becoming a strengthening and a repose. It is the broken speech and the lost word that are made positive and suspended unbroken. As the strange kings fade into a far country, and the mountains resound no more with the feet of the shepherds, and only the night and the cavern lie in fold, upon fold, over something more human than humanity. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.